0: Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at Cato.
1: And I'm Emma Ashford, a research fellow in foreign policy at Cato.
0: Today's topic is one that runs like a current beneath almost everything we talk about on power problems, the question of what factors drive great powers like the United States to decide to compete or cooperate with rising powers and emerging threats. I don't think it's the slightest bit of hyperbole to suggest that the competing answers about how the united states should behave on this question is the core of the grand strategy debate today we are fortunate to have with us today the author of a wonderful book that focuses on this very problem the book is over the horizon time uncertainty and the rise of great powers the author David edelstein associate professor of political science in the department of government and the edmund walsh school of foreign service at georgetown university where he is also a vice dean of faculty. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, let's start, as always, with some some news bits. Um, lots of news to talk about these days. Uh, one. Interesting tidbit. I noticed uh, President Trump has yet again threatened to tie reforms of uh, Mexican, Mexico's immigration control to approval uh, of a new NAFTA agreement. Uh, earlier this month, he uh, tweeted, they must stop the big drug and people flows or I will stop their cash cow NAFTA. Um, is, is this Trump imagining he's killing two birds with one stone or something much, much worse? I think he's creating two problems where he
2: doesn't need to have problems, right? Um, I think NAFTA, sure, there are things in NAFTA that that need to be fixed and could be addressed. And I think there are certainly issues with regard to immigration that that need to be addressed. I'm not sure that there's value in uh, addressing either of those problems by linking them together.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that could probably be the Trump administration's motto, right? Creating crises where none need to exist, um, and this this again just seems like another instance where he has, th- where Donald Trump appears to have decided that trade ties into a core national security issue. In this case, it's immigration. I might disagree with him on it, but it, but it is a core national security issue, and he's decided that trade will end up somehow being the lever that will fix this problem. But like with the Korea situation, with some of these other issues. It doesn't actually work like that. And and so it's not really clear if this is, you know, an administration strategy or just another random tweet.
0: Yeah, It seems like um, subtraction by addition instead of addition by subtraction in this case.
2: Well, it's the you know, it, I think it's the general approach. We've all heard the Trump administration referenced as transactional. Right. And this notion that everything is everything is fungible and everything is tradable. Right. And we'll just put NAFTA here and we'll put immigration here and we'll make some we'll make some grand bargain that that in the end, will work for everybody, which I suppose is the way that a business person might think about this, right? But uh, it's not clear that there's much evidence in international politics that, that that type of transaction works.
1: See, the problem I have with that, though, is that you know I'm fine with transactionalism in foreign policy when it works. But, but what Trump proposes 90% of the time isn't actually a, a rational transaction. He's usually not offering something of value to get something he actually wants in return. So, I mean, maybe he thinks it's transactional, but it, it really isn't in reality.
2: Well, and I think there's a, a more general problem there, which you're suggesting, Emma, which is that I think he he overestimates the the power and leverage that the United States has with regard to other actors, right? And, and I think is... Assumes that others find value in things which he thinks are of value to them, right?
1: Yeah, that's a really great point. We could extrapolate that out to the military too. Think about the Syria strikes last week. He, he found value in a meaningless symbolic political strike, but because it was big and it was military... You know, he thinks it's, it's worth something.
0: Yeah, it's 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 like Trump is drawing on on dark leverage, like dark matter. It's it's there, <laughs> but right. you just can't see it. Uh, but it must operate because we're the United States. And and if I say you're paying for the border wall, you're paying for the wall, despite no obvious leverage really at all. Right. Correct. And I think you know it
2: fits together. I, I in some ways, I think this might be from all the reporting, giving him too much credit, right, for for the degree to which he's actually understanding the, the various levers that are available to him and the levers that are being recommended to him. Uh, I'm not sure that he's, he's grasping
0: the tools that he's using and what their implications are. Okay. That's a terribly um, appropriate pivot to the next news bit, which is about North Korea. Uh, plenty of talk, obviously. Um, in the last week about North Korea, um, they've you know frozen their nuclear testing and made some other sympathetic-sounding noises in advance of of talking with the United States. Um, but then you know at the same time you have Trump saying things like, "Well, I might walk out of this you know meeting. Who knows?" And so on and so forth. I mean, can we predict at all what's going to happen, Kim? All right. Trump called Kim an honorable man this morning. Don't know if you
2: saw that. You know, that's what I think. I think Kim Jong Un, I think honorable man. Right. Um, No, I think uh, my prediction on this was that they will there will be some deal uh, that they make. There will be some symbolic handshake. There will be completely different understandings on both sides about what is implied by that deal. Trump will celebrate as if he has scored some tremendous victory, and within some unspecified period of time, whatever that deal is that people think was struck will have completely deteriorated.
1: You know, there's been some interesting discussion sort of online among people in the sort of arms control community about what is actually meant by denuclearization here, right? And I can't remember who it was, but somebody was referring to it as, you know, the 31 flavors of denuclearization, because this could mean so many things. Um, And the Trump administration definitely seems to think it's something different than the North Koreans think it is, um, because, I mean, as far as I can tell, what the North Koreans are basically suggesting they may offer is perhaps that they'll halt or freeze testing, but keep their fully intact nuclear program with with ICBMs.
2: Right. A halt or freeze nuclear testing, and essentially their request will be to be recognized as a nuclear power, right? Um, I think that's whatever denuclearization means, right, which I'm not sure what it means either. That doesn't strike me as denuclearization, but I, I cannot imagine a world in which Kim gives up nuclear weapons, right? The day that Kim gives up nuclear weapons is two days before he's done, right? The phrase cold
0: dead hand uh, comes to mind there. No, and I don't think, I mean, I think Trump doesn't have a plan for denuclearization of any flavor, I don't think. I mean, that's my sense is that he, he hasn't talked or acted like someone who had a clear plan towards any goal short of... You know, forcing North Korea to get rid of all their nuclear weapons, which I think everyone understands is a non-starter. So then you're asking yourself, what 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 do they think that the charade is going to produce that they could trumpet as mission accomplished? And it's hard. The thing that's really hard for me is listening to the way they talk about Iran and imagining they're going to be able to say anything positive about what they get out of North Korea, which will will be less than that.
1: I'm honestly worried about when the charade ends, this this issue that, that you raised, David, which is how long does whatever deal that the president manages to strike, how long does that last before it becomes apparent that, that he's been played? Um, and, and you could see that going one of two ways. And, and one of those ways is very catastrophic, and it's Trump deciding that military action is called for. The other way, you know, we just all pretend it never happened and sort of forget about it. And you could see both of those being equally likely in a Trump administration. And so that the, the time horizon of that and which way he goes, there's just no predicting it.
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You can, when that point arrives, and I, I would predict it will arrive, at which this deal falls apart and Trump is embarrassed by that, uh, I am not eager to see how that embarrassment manifests itself.
0: Right, or if Bolton starts to sense yeah, Trump yeah, exactly. getting nervous about becoming embarrassed, what Bolton's instincts incline him to suggest. Exactly. Yeah. O- on to something slightly different. Yeah, you
2: got something happier <laughs> for us? <laughs> ah, I don't
0: know. Yeah. Um, so Barack Obama announced a couple of days ago that he's going to be giving a lecture in South Africa, in Johannesburg, to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the birth of Nelson Mandela, um, a-, a speech that he's sort of billing as his most important speech since leaving the White House. And, you know, the sort of the chiaroscuro here, um it with Trump is fairly evident. Um the way Obama speaks is so different from the way Trump speaks about the world, about the United States, and so on. But does it really matter what Obama says anymore? Uh I wish it didn't. I, I honestly I I say that as somebody who has great admiration
2: for, for President Obama. I I much prefer the model in which presidents kind of recede and are, you know, enjoy their post whatever their post-presidential project is, right? And um, are not often heard of or heard from on important matters of the day. Um, I think, unfortunately, given the nature of the administration at the moment, there are simply a lot of people who continue to look to President Obama as the most recent kind of statesman president that we had. And so his voice voice carries, I think, inordinate weight and weight that I think we'd be better off if we were in a position where we were not relying on that voice.
1: I think also that there are some mitigating circumstances in this case. You know, President Obama is not just perhaps the you know the best orator or the most recent sort of statesman like president that we've had. He's also a president that brings a strong awareness of some of the racial politics to this speech, which are, is obviously hugely important in South Africa, and he's perhaps more able. than than even most, I guess, South African politicians today to comment on Nelson Mandela's legacy without it necessarily being about domestic politics. Because I think something that we're kind of overlooking when we talk about the the external international aspects of this is the extent to which Mandela's legacy has been perverted by his political successors. Obama as an outside figure, actually seems like he might be a better fit for that choice, even if Donald Trump doesn't like it.
2: Well, I think for South Africa, from what I've heard, it's also meant to address the the broader continent, right, and, and really be about political leadership in the broader continent, which I I suspect is is not coincidental, right? I, I mean, I think it, it appeals to President Obama's own personal interests, but I think it also in this moment when I think there is a sense of many that... that the attention given to the the african continent is perhaps not what it could be that this is this is a way of kind of demonstrating continuing continuing american interest in in the future of africa
0: yeah that yeah. I, I wish I didn't worry that more American attention to Africa was not actually good for Africa, but I'm afraid well, that's, that's where I am at this point.
2: That's a fair point. I, I'm not actually sure though that his speech will be all that all that consequential in the end. So
1: But uh, at least he did not get invited to the royal wedding and Donald Trump is not upset uh, about, about that. Right. Which we which we now know.
0: There we go. All right, okay. <clears throat> let's um, let's flip. Uh, and before we get to our main topic, we have to ask you, David, the surprise question of the day, and that is this: uh, What is the first or uh, earliest book, or maybe a journal article, uh, or perhaps even a, a course that you took that really turned you on to the field of international affairs? It's
2: a great question. Uh, so I was lucky enough to do my undergraduate studies at. At Colgate University in New York State, small liberal arts school. And uh, I still remember in one of my first uh, international relations classes there, I read Man, the State, and War, uh, Kenneth Waltz's classic, what it was his dissertation and became his his first book. Uh, and I remember I read it, I think, in one sitting. Uh, and it was just it was beautifully written. And the arguments were I think the the wonder of that book is, like like many great books, is it poses more questions than it answers, right? Um, and I think really set him up for what came later in theory of international politics. Uh, but I that was the book that really made me understand – I'd always been interested in politics, right, and foreign policy and in international politics. That was the book that helped me understand what the academic study of international politics was about, uh, and from the moment I read that book, that, that's when I knew that, that this was what I wanted to do.
0: Fantastic. I do love that book. I assign it every year in one of my graduate courses, and uh, I think even though it is now at this point several decades uh, old, it, the writing is so beautiful and the logic is so crystal clear that everyone comes away impressed. I think that's right, and I think I would just say, I th- as I'm
2: sitting here thinking about it, I, my sense is that it's it's read less and less these days. Which, um, I, I, and there are various explanations I suspect for that, but I think that's unfortunate, right? I think that we we've kind of stopped reading some of those classics from a from a different era that I think could really still inform uh, our understanding of international politics in in important ways. Here, here, love it.
0: All right. All right. So no more delay. Let's let's talk about your book, uh, sir. And and why don't we start by giving our listeners an overview of, of the project and your argument. And so tell us first, you know, what's the basic question you address, why it matters and and why are time horizons so important in international politics?
2: Yeah, so the book, uh, the basic question the book tries to explain is what explains patterns of cooperation and competition between declining powers and rising powers in international politics? Um, as you mentioned in the introduction, right, this is an age-old question in international politics. Uh, but what i one of the observations i had on the existing literature is i think the the literature that's out there tends to either overpredict competition or overpredict cooperation and not actually capture and explain in a satisfying way the the variation that that's there and i think underestimates the variation that's actually there in, in the those relationships so I think I make a contribution to the academic literature in sort of trying to account for that variation. I think the book also matters because I'd like to think it it tells us something about um, contemporary U.S. grand strategy, relations with China, uh, and understanding. Uh, Even more, I think, the evolution of Sino-American relations and how we've gotten to where we are today necessarily than even predicting into the future. I can do that, and I'm sure we'll get into that. But um, I think it gives us some some understanding of how that relationship has evolved uh, over the years. And um, as to why time horizons are so important in international affairs, you know, so I'll give one – one anecdote on the the origins of this book. The the origins of this book um, in part lie in the first time that I read Mearsheimer's Tragedy of Great Power Politics and the, the first edition of that book in the the um, concluding chapter, the penultimate chapter of that book, he talks about Sino-American relations and he he very boldly says that he thinks the U.S. and China are essentially on a collision course and he goes even further to suggest that a rationalist United States Anticipating this should basically stop, kind of you know, sort of cooperating with China, trading with China, sort of really try and strangle the baby in the cradle, right? And I remember reading that, and I remember reading it and thinking, what was missing from that analysis was any understanding or appreciation of the different time horizons that leaders operate under. Which is to say that to expect American leaders who get economic value out of cooperation with China. To cut off that trade and pay a short-term cost because of a concern about what China is going to look like 30 years from now uh, is likely expecting too much out of not only American political leaders but lots of political leaders, right? And so it was from that insight that I started to think more generally about time horizons and start to realize that – I think if you look across a number of different um, research traditions in international politics, there are a lot of assumptions made about time horizons, uh, and very, very infrequently are those assumptions actually interrogated and thought about in, a, in an overt way.
1: Yeah, you know, I think there's so many other areas of international politics you could also apply this this to. Obviously, you're focusing on great power politics, but you you mentioning Mearsheimer just makes me think about the fact that you know he argued after the Cold War that NATO was going to collapse, and, and everybody's sort of slammed him for it, but. as far as I remember, didn't really specify much in the way of a time for that to happen. He just said it's going to happen. And so you're right in in that that situation exactly the same way. Policymakers are trading off sort of the short-term costs, the political costs of just abandoning something that they've been working on for years when we finally reach the point where it gets too costly, maybe they'll find it worth paying that price. So, you know, I I really like this point put more broadly as well. Well,
2: I would say uh, thank you. And I would say one of the other places, one of the places where time horizons do kind of come explicitly... Into the literature, discussions about the shadow of the future, right? Classic institutionalist arguments about how a long shadow of the future facilitates cooperation, right? If you if you know that this cooperation doesn't go on for a long time, it gives you incentives to cooperate in the short term. One of the arguments I make in the book actually runs counter to that and suggests that actually the more that in in this context, in the context of rising great powers, the more you're thinking about the long term the more concerned you actually get, right? And the more that you start thinking about, all right, is there something we need to do now to make sure that we're not dealing with what would be an even costlier course of action in the future?
0: All right, so another good pivot. So your argument in in the book is that it's this intersection of the declining and the rising power's time horizons, where they're focused, uh, that is the key to whether you end up seeing cooperation or or competition. So then what factors explain which short or long-term horizon they adopt.
2: Right. So so I start from, a I I would say, a baseline expectation for for both types of states, which is to say for rising powers, I expect that rising powers will have longer time horizons, right? Their brightest days are ahead. Uh, Their basic incentive is to avoid doing anything in the short term that is going to provoke the declining power into doing something, preventive war, other types of actions that would make it more more difficult for them to reach that that future. So for for rising powers patience is a virtue, right? And they tend to have longer time horizons. Declining powers on the other hand, they're worried about what's happening to them, right? And their baseline is that they're basically focused on the short term, right? Cuz if you're worried about whether you're going to survive, you can't afford to be thinking about about the long term, so you tend to you tend to focus more on the the short term. Now, as I sort of started to work through this argument, one of the things I encountered was then I need to be able to explain variation and why this sometimes shifts, right? And in both cases, there are explanations for why they shift. In the case of rising powers, the the puzzle is what explains impatience by rising powers, right? When do they start to act more provocatively in the short term? And I lay out some arguments in the book that that have to do with, in some cases, uh, domestic pressures, nationalist pressures to act more aggressively. It can have to do with other states provoking them, right? In a way that they feel like they need to respond. They can't just kind of brush that aside, but they actually need to need to respond to it. Um, and in some other cases, it could be that they they have gotten to a point where to continue their rise requires new resources, or for them to act aggressively to to acquire what they need to sustain their rise. On the other hand, uh, there are also instances in which. Um, Declining powers can become, I think, more long-term oriented. And, and I would say the most, the most important of those is if the, essentially if, if the declining power doesn't face any other short-term threats, right? Um, I would say uh, kind of long time horizons is a, is a luxury for declining powers, and it's a luxury that they can, they can entertain when they're essentially sh- secure and wealthy over the short term. Then they can start to think, okay, what's out there that I might need to think about addressing now?
0: Right. So I, uh, th- you know, your your, what you just said there, I, I hadn't thought about it when I was reading the book, but the way you just said this, one one of the things you mentioned in the book is that <clears throat> for um, a, de- a declining power, it's look- looking in the long term. You know, the, one of the keys here is the intentions of the rising power, and you know, ha- what your take on the future is is going to depend a lot on whether you see a, a, a harmonious, potentially peaceful future or or not so much, and and. The other thing that I was trying to figure out in my own mind, reading about rising powers, deciding to uh, finally provoke or, or, you know, when when do you think a rising power becomes an existing power? And as I thought about that, one of the questions I had is, is it possible that, because you sort of argue, well, capabilities really isn't the main thing, it's the intentions. And I thought, is really the time horizon of a power the best sign of whether it's a rising power in some ways? Because- as long as they're looking ahead, they think their best days are ahead. They're a rising power, but what? But like China, are they an existing power or a rising power at this point?
2: Well, right. It's an interesting question. I think there are there are kind of two different ways you can think about that. Right. One is sort of in a kind of objective material sense, are they a rising power or not, right, which you can look at all the indicators we typically rely on to judge whether is their economy still growing, is their military still growing in both kind of absolute and relative terms. Uh, and I think that's important, but I would actually sort of go in the direction I think you were suggesting, right, which is that I think those, those material measures in some way matter less than what leaders think of their future and how they anticipate their future, right? So um, I think the leaders of rising and declining powers, in essence, um, kind of define themselves as as declining and rising powers based on how they see themselves and, and how they see the trajectory of their own country. I would expect that's informed by material factors, but I expect it's probably informed by other things as well
1: you know not, not to move us onto sort of policy issues too early in this conversation but i feel like that that raises a really interesting question of um when mm-hmm. do elites i guess embrace the idea of decline. And I I just feel like Donald Trump has brought this debate into the fore. Um, And I think I'd probably be wrong not to flag up Cato's own Chris Preble. actually had an article in the New York Times on Sunday on this question. He didn't really tackle the question of whether we are in decline, but it feels like we're starting to have that debate about whether we're a declining power or an existing power. Um, And we're not just focusing on metrics to do it.
2: Right. And I think it's, you know, it's obviously it's not a very um, politically... Uh, wise position to sort of, I think, sort of say publicly, you know, we are a declining power, right? Vote for me. Um, that's that's probably not the way to to win an election.
1: But Donald Trump said, you know, we're declining, and I will make us rise again, right? Which is one way to do it, right?
2: Well, I think that's right. I think it's, you know, and I, I think Trump, you know, to, to anticipate the Trump question, right? I think Trump has has essentially kind of. Shifted this around to say we are we are not a declining power, right? We are a rising power, and everyone needs to understand that we're a rising power. Whether or not the reality comports with that is 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 actually not as important as the fact that he's trying to convince people that it's that it's the truth, right? Um, and so I think you know, do states? I, I think it's very hard to find a, a leader out there, a state out there that that actively says we are a declining power. I think there are leaders and states out there historically that have at least acknowledged that while they may not be a declining power, there are certainly others around them
0: that are rising faster than they are. Right, and so in a relative sense, they're they're declining. So you. you... Walk through a number of case studies in the book, and and I want to save U.S. and China for later because that's really I think the the most important case. But m- maybe you could just walk us through one of these cases to show us how this argument works in in practice.
2: Yeah, so uh, I'll use the the case that i probably talked about the most. I've been joking with people since I finished this book. I'm never I'm never writing anything about Bismarck again. Um, I'm I'm done with Bismarck. Uh, so but it's it's in some ways my my favorite case in the book and it's the one that I think in some ways illustrates the argument the best which is um so I look at the the um the rise of Bismarck's Germany basically from 1871 when Germany is unified uh up through the the Franco-Russian alliance in 1893 1894 and the the kind of the puzzle in some ways that motivates this case study uh is that there there isn't at least in the form of an alliance, something that looks like a balancing coalition. There really isn't any effort to sort of stop Germany's growth, to contain it in any noticeable way, after that unification in 1871 until the Franco-Russian alliance, right? And that's even in 1871, you have all this, every European leader is expressing concern about what Germany's unification means for the European continent, but they don't do anything about it, right? And so that's that's in some ways the puzzle, right? And my explanation for that puzzle uh, is a combination of Bismarck, and and I I try to avoid the kind of Bismarck hagiography that is is, very popular in those who study Bismarck, but I do think Bismarck understood that by reassuring other European powers, it was going to make it more likely that that Germany was going to be able to rise and achieve its, its fullest potential. So he consistently both tried to avoid things that would look provocative, and when he could act as sort of an honest broker in Europe, right, and send reassuring signals that I'm just interested I'm you know, he says I'm a sated, Germany's a sated power, we don't need anything else, we're just, you know, let's
0: just try and match this. And yeah. yeah. so just to, just to, you know, yeah, confirm yeah. here, so that's helping the rest of Europe uh, both stay short-term focused and not worry about long-term German
2: exactly. risks. Exactly. Exactly. It, the what is complementary to that, to Bismarck's own approach, is that, as everyone famously knows, Europe at this time is a multipolar system in which they're all worrying about each other, right? And they're all worrying each, about each other in the short term. Their own preference is not to have to think about what Germany is going to look like a few decades down the road, right? So Bismarck sort of reinforces those preferences, avoids things that are going to sort of lead them to ask questions about Germany. He he makes a few missteps, The famous war and site crisis in 1875 which I could I could bore your listeners with for for hours on end with details of the war and site crisis when he he against his own inclinations uh, explores colonialism in the 1880s and sort of gets everybody's attention by doing that and in both those cases he sort of does it cringing right he realizes he's made mistakes in acting provocatively But for the most part, other European leaders, not only are they not balancing against Germany, but it's in their short-term interest to think about are there opportunities there to actually cooperate with Germany, right, to achieve their interests. So every European power, including France, including their arch enemy France, right, there is a a, a relatively understudied but actually very interesting Franco-German detente in the late 1870s into the early 1880s in which they're actually getting along swimmingly, right, and there's kind of mutual interest there uh, on both sides. So I would just say where that falls apart, right, where this ultimately falls apart is so Bismarck famously leaves office, right, and Kaiser Wilhelm II comes in who infamously has anything but patience, right, and adopts a whole bunch of foreign policy initiatives that start to raise the concern of other European powers about what long-term German intentions are and that ultimately culminates in the, the Franco-Russian alliance.
0: So one of the things that I've really found fascinating <clears throat> is you're distinguishing between uncertainty and risk mm. as countries look to the future. And, in, and what you've just described is, is people allowing themselves to feel uncertain in a very neutral sense of the word about what Germany might be eventually. And then when Kaiser Wilhelm comes in, it switches to risk. Yeah, so this is one
2: of my, I think, main theoretical targets in the book, uh, which is to say that you know, there's a popular argument out there that, that um, under conditions of uncertainty, uh, you assume the worst about a state's intentions, you assume the worst about their capabilities, and you, per- you do everything to prepare for the worst, right? And I think, uh, theoretically, there's no good reason to make that leap, right? There's no good reason to think that under conditions of uncertainty, you assume the worst. If you actually behave as if you're assuming the worst, that's going to be a very expensive thing to do, right? You're going to spend a lot of money sort of acting on worst case assumptions. Uh, And empirically, it just, I don't think there's much evidence to suggest that that's what that's what states do. So what I, the distinction I draw, which is draws on a long history, and mostly in the economics, the kind of behavioral economics literature, uh, is a distinction between uncertainty, which is sort of true uncertainty, where you just don't know what the future holds, right? And those are the conditions under which I think states are still inclined to think about cooperation, right, despite uncertainty. Uh, And then Once you start to be able to put probabilistic estimates on things, right, and those probabilistic estimates are a function of assessments of both intentions and capabilities, then you start to see the kind of space for cooperation, uh, I think, start to shrink in in important ways. Yeah, Yeah.
0: that's really – I find that so fascinating.
1: Yeah, this is really interesting because it kinda of suggests that so much of this might be perception based and that perhaps the most effective strategy a rising power can actually adopt is basically mitigating the mitigating the idea that they're going to be a risk in the future and and making policymakers in in other states basically just think about the future more openly more broadly and prevent them from ever getting into that mind space where they actually start to think about whether this is a risk or not
2: yeah well i i think that's i think that's one of the arguments that that comes out of the book which is that it actually behooves rising powers to maintain uncertainty about the future right and i i would put a footnote on this um, Randy Schweller and Jennifer Mitzen had a piece in security studies several years ago in which they they argued, I think, smartly that that a lot of the, the conflict we see in international politics doesn't necessarily come out of uncertainty. It comes out of false certainty, right? It comes out of sort of leaping to assumptions about what's going on rather than recognizing that there are conditions under which uncertainty and you can't resolve it, right? And so what do you do in those conditions? again, my argument suggests that, that states are looking for opportunities to benefit from cooperation in a lot of cases,
0: right? And uncertainty actually provides the space for them to do that. Yeah. And what I, what I think, maybe as an ornery personality myself, what I think what I like most about this is that it both flies in the face of assumptions uh, from the offensive realists about the fact that states are always going to assume the worst and we're going to have a race to the bottom, and the false comfort of liberal institutionalists who think that the shadow of the future means we're always going to have cooperation. So you get to stick sticks in both directions, which I kind of think is neat.
2: Uh, Yeah. I mean, I would say um, one of the things that I, that I like about this book is uh, I've heard from, I've heard from realist friends of mine who have said, ah, you're not a realist anymore. If if I ever was one. Right. And I've heard from liberal institutionalists, what are you doing? Right. And I, I don't, I don't, claim an affiliation. I don't claim a camp in the book. uh, And people have read it in different ways in different places. And I actually kind of like that, right? And... um uh, you know, I think that I think various people in various traditions have said smart things and and we ought to take the best of of what's out there and come up with our own arguments.
1: I do think as we as we move into perhaps talking about the u s and china, the the one idea that you do refute pretty pretty soundly is the whole Thucydides trap idea that's been so popular over the last couple of years that it's an inevitability,
2: yeah. And I think. Uh, yes, I, I think the Thucydides trap argument is uh, an unfortunate one, as as others have noted, right? And I think is is it's you know, and Mearsheimer guilty of this, and some of the stuff he's written about China as well. It's it's just it's too deterministic, right? It's it I think it doesn't recognize it takes the politics out of all this in some way, right? Which I'd like to think that part of what my book does is is recognize that this is actually all political, right? And there are political processes here that determine what the outcomes
0: are going to be all right so let's let's do it. Let's talk about the u s and china when you when you use this framework and you know you've been steeped in this now for years what what do you see when you see the u s and china
2: Well, the first thing I would say is as i as I mentioned before right I think in some ways the 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 value of the argument in the book is as much explaining kind of where we've been over the last couple of decades as to where we're going um, you know i the example I always use is if you if you go back to the the 1990s, right um, when I was in when I was in graduate school, and that was the that was the first wave of the kind of rising China literature, right? International Security was publishing articles all the time on it, and people were starting to kind of pay attention to it. And then you have, if you go back to the 2000 U.S. presidential election, the the Republican primaries uh, in 2000 where the, the two main candidates were John McCain and George W. Bush, the only foreign policy issue that they really had a debate on was the rise of China and what its implications were going to be, right? They talked a little bit about Kosovo, right? But other than that, they basically agreed on Kosovo. So the, the rise of China was really the main issue that they were, they were uh, debating. And I think the reason for that is because you go back to the the halcyon days of the 1990s, right, there were no other threats that the United States was worrying about. So you start thinking about, all right, if we don't have a threat, let's go create one. And the one that that was created was China, this long-term threat. Again, thinking about the long-term is a a luxury of the secure and wealthy. So then 9-11 happens, right? 9-11 happens, and suddenly there is a more imminent threat that the United States perceives that needs to be addressed. And not only does that cause the the threat from china to recede in the eyes of the u.s but china starts to appear as a as a potential partner right in the wake of 9-11 there are various uh initiatives between the united states and china to think about ways that they could mutually benefit from cooperation um in addressing what each saw as a terrorist threat that they that they faced Um, So you start to see, I would think, I think a a, a period in which there is less attention to that threat because the U.S. is dealing with – with this, this threat from, from terrorism and then Iraq and Afghanistan and, and all that, all that Mm -hmm. follows. Um, so then, you know, follow through and we get to today when, when, uh, obviously the Sino American relationship has grown a little bit more hostile. And I think there've been, you know, one, as I started thinking through this and as I got to the end of this and realized I had to write this final chapter on, on China, I started asking all my, um, all my friends who are really China experts, uh, about why why did the Chinese start acting more aggressively a few years ago, right? If you think about the, their behavior, w- whether it's with regard to Japan or in the South China Sea, I think there's actually a, a real puzzle there as to why the Chinese decided at that moment that they were going to become more, more uh, assertive. And I think there are a variety of answers there having to do, with, some with domestic politics in China, some having to do with, as I mentioned before, um, There's plenty of blame to go around in what's happened, particularly in the South China Sea. It's not all with China. There's been provocative behavior by other states there that I think have put China in a difficult position. Um, And the implication of that, though, is China has become more aggressive. The U.S. has become more concerned about their intentions. The U.S.- simultaneously has, you know, this kind of waxes and wanes, but its interest in Afghanistan. And I think there's just, there's more bandwidth for the U.S. to be worrying about China now. And and thus we've seen this this concern. I think going forward, what follows from that, right, is that um, as other more immediate threats to the United States recede, what's going to follow is that the U.S. is going to pay more attention to the rise of China. Right, so if the U.S. could actually address the North Korea situation, kind of put that to bed, right? If the U.S. could actually sort of become satisfied that the the Iran situation is stable, right? If the U.S. could actually get out of Afghanistan, right? All these all these various things, right? I think the the, the irony of what would occur, right, is in some ways. Clearing those threats away would make more room for the U.S. to think about the the threat potentially posed by China. So kind of a double-edged sword there.
1: That's a really interesting argument, particularly because, um, you know, I, th- I think a lot of people would just would ask the very simple question, which is, you know, are all of our commitments right now distracting us from the potential that China is at risk in the future? Whereas what you're almost suggesting is that... Um, you know put aside the, the military balance, put aside the parapolitics part of it. but if we were to get out of those perhaps we'd militarily be in a better place but we might end up driving ourselves to a place where conflict with China is more likely.
2: I, I think that's right I think you know and this is, this is an argument that isn't in the book but an argument that I that I would make right which is that uh, great powers need threats. Right. Great, powers, great powers don't like being in situations where there aren't threats. Uh, and we, when there isn't a threat that's apparent, we go find one or we create one, right? And I think uh, were these other perceived threats and issues to, to go away, we'd be in that position again of saying, all right, well, well, what's the, what's the threat that will give us our meaning in some way, right? And uh, China is the most likely candidate there
0: yeah I remember meeting uh, reading uh, Barnett's uh, book Pentagon's New Map, and his argument was that nine eleven saved the Pentagon from itself because it had gotten so wrapped up in planning for China, wrongly in his opinion, uh, that it was, you know, oh well, thank goodness we had something to take our minds off. it. And then, of course, you have people say, Hal Brands, more recently, finally we've woken up to China and the real threat that it poses and we've gotten through enough distractions we can finally put, put our money where it needs to be. And so yeah, this is, of course, the debate, which is no, one, no one's, I don't think either side, if there's two sides, have yet agreed on what China's intentions really are. No, I think that's right. And I think, uh, you know,
2: the Chinese... Uh, Deng Xiaoping's famous, you know, bide your time doctrine, right? Uh that's it's you know it's it's music to my ears in terms of the argument in the book, right? I think the Chinese for for a few decades there understood that it it made a lot of sense for them to just kind of lay low, right? Let everything else happen. We'll just continue to rise at, you know, whatever percent growth every year and hope nobody notices, right? And we will refrain from anything that looks provocative. and, And it worked for them, right? I think it worked for them very well. And they benefited greatly from trade with the United States in particular, but lots of other countries around the world. Uh, And so, you know, as a consequence of that, they've grown into this this great power. And the question then becomes, again, why why abandon that approach when they did?
1: Are we now in a situation uh, where we're talking about risk with China rather than uncertainty?
2: Well, I don't... Yeah, I think... um, I think we're moving into that situation, right? I I don't know that we've been in that kind of state of true uncertainty about China. I think there's always been some reason to worry, but I think it's it's the combination, it's not only intentions, but it's also the combination the the growth of pretty significant Chinese military capabilities, right, that I think allows the US to start putting more of a kind of risk assessment on this and thinking about this probabilistically. But in a way, that's my that's that's one of the key takeaways about Book right is we there's this tendency in in discussions about great power politics, to think that when you think about two great powers they either fully cooperate with them or they fully compete with them right and one of the arguments that I try and make in the book is just like you know just like you or I make a calculation about whether to whether to cross the street against a red light by looking both ways and deciding whether I can make it or not right states make probabilistic judgments about what makes the most sense for them and, and how to pursue their strategies. And they calibrate their strategies appropriately.
0: So let me ask one last question. You know, you're pretty careful in the book not to suggest that short-term thinking or long-term thinking is better on the face of it. Um, how, do, how does a leader, I mean, this is an art, not a science, I guess. But, you know, what, what policy implications, do, you know, do you have here? What, what do you tell a policymaker to do? yeah so it's a great
2: question right i I think the one thing I do try and push back against in the book is the uh the the praise of those who think for the, of, about the long term as, as if it is necessarily a virtuous thing right I have this quote um above from a late nineteenth century american preacher about the 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 distinction between a you know, a statesman thinks about the long term, a politician thinks about the short term, right as, as, so as to denigrate the politician, right? Um, but I think one of the, the findings in my book, one of the arguments in my book is actually that may very well be true in some regard, but it's also true that thinking about that long term can actually generate much more competitive and potentially conflictual outcomes, right? So yes, there's virtue in thinking about the long term. and, and you know, as Emma was saying before, I think there are there are numerous other contexts in which the kind of types of arguments I'm making apply. And so, you know, you could think about everything from you know, environmental issues to human rights issues, trade issues, you name it, right, where there's a long-term, short-term trade-off in which all of us as individuals may have preferences on whether we we want our leaders to be thinking more long-term or short-term. I think my takeaway would be that there's there's no single answer to whether it's better to be thinking
0: more long-term or more short-term. And we are now thinking very short-term because we are out of time. Uh, So thanks to David for joining us and thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, To continue the conversation with us, you can always uh, find us and the rest of the Cato Foreign Policy team on Twitter at, at CatoFP. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeff Geld. And if you liked the episode, we'd love a good review on iTunes or Google Play.